I'm glad to be with you again. Welcome to the continuation of our study of the Gospel of Mark. There he sat on a sidewalk of the airport terminal in Douala, Cameroon. The traffic was jammed and we could not make our way to the place where you get out of the car, get your luggage and then check in. So this gave, gave us time to observe him. A tall, slim man with bare arms, bare legs. Next to him, a special container filled with water. He was washing himself intensively, his hands, his arms, his legs, his head even, and then finally the feet. It was the rainy season. Mud everywhere, puddles of water, and he was not wearing any shoes. He was washing his feet with the water from the carafe, but in the next moment, these feet would go into the same mud and the puddle that they had come out a moment before, brownish water. It did not matter. The issue was not hygiene. The issue was to be pure, a Muslim ritual. I invite you to open your Bibles to Mark 7, the passage that we will start, which we will study today. It's the first part of Mark 7, and it begins with describing an encounter between Jesus, the Pharisees, and the scribes. Now, this is a turning point. Mark 7 is a turning point in Jesus' ministry. Has he so far mainly served in Galilee, he now purposely steps into Gentile territory. And you will see that in the second part then of this chapter. It says here, verse 24, Jesus got up and went away from there to the region of Tyre, Gentile territory. Coming through Sidon, he goes to the region of Decapolis, Gentile territory, verse 33, uh, th uh, 31, sorry. And then we find him in Caesarea Philippi. Mark 8, verse 27. And finally, he comes back, makes his way to Judea. This move on the part of Jesus is connected to the passage that we will study today, the first part of chapter 7. It does not seem as if this journey has anything to do with the first part, and yet it does. Now, we are ready to read uh, Mark 7, verses 1 through 13. Mark 7, 1 through 13. Now, when the Pharisee gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come down from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes ask him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said, this is the passage that we heard in scripture, during scripture reading, and he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, 
as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain, vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of man. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of man. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, so, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Now, this is heavy stuff. This is heavy stuff. So put on your seatbelt and follow in scripture. So here's the situation again. Jesus' disciples have not washed their hands before eating. The Pharisees and the Jewish theologians have a problem with that. And so they approach Jesus. Now, parents teach their children to wash their hands before eating. When we invite people to our homes, we offer them to use the powder room. In cafeterias and at church potlucks, we find bottles of hand sanitizers. In public restrooms of stores and restaurants, you see signs posted where it says that the staff should wash hands before they return to work. No question, hygiene is a good thing and it's healthy. But this is not the issue of the story. This is not the issue of the story here. The Pharisees do not have a problem with the lack of hygiene on the part of the disciples. They have a problem with ritual purity. So the issue is defilement. In verse 3 and 4, we hear about the practices of the Jews according to the traditions of the elders. They wash. And here you have the Greek word baptizo, from which we derive the word to baptize. So they baptize, they immerse pitchers, kettles, and even beds. Some translations have avoided that because they said there is no evidence that they even washed beds. But in the meantime, there is evidence that they did even this. So tradition of the elders that have been transmitted to the present generation are the issue. Now here is how the question of this, the, now the question of the Pharisees and the scribes. They ask, why do your disciples keep the traditions of the elders? They eat with defiled hands because they have not ritually cleansed them. In the text here, you may have noticed that the issue of tradition occurs a second time. The tradition of the elders is simply the oral, scribal interpretation of the written law, the Mosaic law. So they have further interpreted that. This question, why do they not keep the traditions of the elders, may sound harmless to us. But in reality, this is a serious attack on Jesus and his mission. And Jesus does not directly answer this question. So if you look at the entire passage that we just have read until verse 13, there is no discussion of defilement. It only comes later. But Jesus responds very forcefully. Why? 
And what about the defiled hands? The Greek term that is used here means either common in the sense of communal or shared, or it can also mean impure. But here's the important point. This word in the meaning of impure is not at all used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Okay? This word is not used in the sense of impure in the Old Testament. Cultic and ritual impurity is described with another Greek term, if you read the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And this other term refers, for instance, to unclean things, such as touching carcasses, unclean animals, uncleanness of women after childbirth, uncleanness through leprosy, and uncleanness through bodily discharges. But this is not the term being used here. In other words, it is in some sense almost a new expression the elders have created by extension a new category of defilement. This new category allows them to declare people unclean by touch, even if they have not become unclean according to the Mosaic law. And therefore, Jesus has to react strongly. There is much more at stake than just unwashed hands. This very same term about defilement that is used here occurs again in this famous vision of Peter. You remember in, in Acts 10 when this sheet came from heaven with these uh, animals in there and Peter was asked to consume that and finally he, he finds out that it is not about eating but not to consider any human being unclean not to consider Gentiles unclean. So even after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, Peter is still influenced by the traditions of the elders. This is the point. I mean, he changes his, his view, but he's still influenced. People are in, unclean because Gentiles, you don't know what they have touched or what they have done, so automatically they're unclean, and so you don't have contact with them. Jesus here has to break the shackles. So what does he do? Therefore, right after this episode, he moves to Tyre, to the territory of the Gentiles, and he meets the Syrophoenician woman, healing her child. And after having moved on to Decapolis, he works a miracle for this deaf person. So for Jesus, no human being is in himself or herself unclean, untouchable, out of the reach of the gospel. Whoever comes to Jesus is welcome. Nobody is too far from the kingdom of God and from his grace. I don't know if you have thought about it. Um, I have done that recently, uh, or repeatedly, I should say. Basically, most of us, with a few exceptions, are Gentile Christians, aren't we? Gentile Christians, we are not automatically part of the elect people of God. Gentile Christians. But Jesus has opened also for us the way to the kingdom. We are not unclean, not detestable, but his friends, 
invited to the messianic banquet. And therefore, gratitude fills our heart. See, the issue is broader, I said, than washing hands. While this question of the Pharisees and scribes is short and pointed, Jesus' answer is long and vigorous. Pharisees and scribes argue with the tradition of the highly esteemed elders. Jesus argues with scripture. The scripture. Beginning with Isaiah. And here's the point. The Pharisees and scribes worry about unwashed hands. They honor God, Jesus goes on to say through Isaiah, they honor God with their lips. But their hearts are far from God. Do you see the progression? Hands, lips, heart. The heart counts, not the cleanliness of hands and the mere confession of the lips. Total commitment. Worship without the heart is worthless. It is also worthless because the teachings of Jewish leadership are, as Jesus said, mere commandments of man. He does not talk about commandments of elders. These are the commandments of man, human beings, verse 7. In verse 8, eight Jesus goes a step further. The honored traditions of the elders, mentioned twice before, are nothing else than a human construct. The venerable elders are reduced to people such as you and me. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of man. Tradition was, has topped God's commandment. Verse 9 repeats this dramatic problem. God's will, his commandments, are being superseded by human tradition. Tradition of man versus commandment of God. But this is not it. From Isaiah, Jesus moves on to the higher authority of Moses, even to the fifth commandment given directly by God on Mount Sinai. This commandment is set aside by human tradition and practice in the time of Jesus. So Jewish leadership basically has made void the Decalogue. And the problem does not end here. Some of the Ten Commandments were also set aside in church history. And tragically, they're still today, at least partially, in most faith communities. For Jesus, for Jesus, an attack of one of the commandments, verse 13, is an attack on the word of God. Jesus says, they invalidate the word of God. This is extremely serious. Humans encroach on God's sovereignty, his will and his word. Tradition, verse 3. Tradition, verse 5. Tradition, verse 8. Tradition, verse 9. Tradition, verse 13, namely that which has been transmitted and, and the word tradition itself. Six times, six times, tradition versus the will of God and the word of God. Holy scripture is superseded by tradition. They are, inco they are incorrectly interpreted 
because of own agendas. The tradition becomes even a sign of orthodoxy. And those who do not follow, like in this case the disciples, are heretics. And they need to be pressured to comply with the authorities. So Jesus leaves the Pharisees and scribes with this answer. He does not pursue it further. He has taken up the issue of tradition versus scripture, and this is enough. Now nations, people groups, and families have traditions and customs. These come in different categories. First, there are customs that are good. Traditions that are good, they should not be abandoned. They reflect biblical principles. It is good, for example, to go to church regularly, as Jesus did. It is good to welcome Sabbath on Friday night, either in the church, in the family circle, or in a small group. It's good. And it's good to attend Sabbath school. It is good to have the tradition of daily devotionals as individuals, as spouses, or families. Some of these traditions we may even need to revive and to fill with new meaning. Second, there are traditions which are neither prescribed by scripture nor are they opposed by scripture and they do not violate biblical principles. It is not wrong, at least I believe, it's not wrong to celebrate July 4. And it's not wrong to have a birthday party, you heard about in the children's story, or a farewell reception. These can be maintained and enjoyed, these traditions. Number three, there are, however, traditions that militate against the word of God. Worship of saints and Mary, certain pilgrimages, blessings and worship of heavenly bodies and man-made images, religious writings that attain the authority of scripture and are placed on the same level with or even beyond above scripture, to name just a few. And number four, and this is, I think, most difficult, there are traditions and practices that were correct and good and necessary at one time, but they had to be abandoned later. This is difficult. Early Christianity had to let go of the ceremonial system and of Jewish festivals. These specific laws of God were either prefiguring Christ and his ministry or they were directed toward Israel as theocracy. With the advent and the death of the Messiah, animal sacrifices had to be abandoned. No question about that. They had to be abandoned. Their intended goal was fulfilled, surpassed by the new and greater reality. And they had trans transitioned. These practices transitioned to become a mere tradition to maintain, for example, the Old Testament sacrificial system would have been a denial of salvation that has come through the death, death of Jesus Christ. Later in history, slavery had to be abandoned because it is opposed to the divine ideal and dehumanizes people made in the image of God. But with the rise of Christianity and later Islam, new traditions arose. 
some of these traditions, or the majority of them, may have to be abandoned today because they are opposed to biblical faith, theology, and practice. So no question, no question that is difficult and painful to abandon cherished traditions. Why? Because they provide some kind of order and routine. They give structure to society. They prevent chaos. It is easier to do what always at all places has been done. Traditions may simplify or at least seem to simplify life and create identity. They may even control to some extent the evil in human beings. So there is this neurologist and psychiatrist with the name Reinhard Haller who has worked intensively with criminals, among them with 300 murderers, and he comes to the following conclusion. I quote him, each human being is by nature evil. This is his conclusion, contradicting many of his colleagues who would say humans become criminals only through evil influences of the environment. Haller holds that this is not the case. Human beings are evil from the start. And so they have to go through education and experience to make them socially adapted beings. So culture, he would basically say, and conventions are necessary for people to become yeah, more adapted. Traditions are powerful, extremely powerful. And Jewish leadership felt threatened by the behavior of the disciples. They must have been deeply concerned and angry because of Jesus' forceful reactions. How come that he dares to challenge traditions? And this is the same today for societies around the world and for world religions, including Christianity. Who dares, who dares to question conventions and cultural traditions? Marco Blanco writes about the Pope, this recent visit. He says, in many ways, Francis is also shaking long time and hard to remove traditions and beliefs of the Roman Catholic Church. In his first Holy Thursday Mass, instead of celebrating it at the Basilica and washing the feet of priests, Francis preached at the, at the youth prison and washed the feet of several inmates, including women and Muslims. On the other hand, at this very same visit just recently, he canonized the controversial Junipero Cerro just a few days ago. And this was done in DC. The 22nd saint that he canonized during his reign so far. So is it possible to give up teachings and practices that contradict the word of God? Is it not easier to reinterpret, rationalize, and defend what one is doing? Now, and here the point hits home. The question reaches us also as Adventists. Does Jesus possibly ask us to rethink our traditions and check if they are still in conformity with scripture and in case that they do not directly relate to scripture, if they are healthy, uplifting, or hurtful. You may ask, 
do we have any traditions as Adventists? We just follow scripture. Check the church in different parts of the world and see how it struggles with the, with the power of at times questionable cultural practices. And I could name a number of them. What about church structure and approaches to leadership? How come that in countries with autocratic political leadership, we have oftentimes autocratic church leadership, while in democratic countries, leadership is typically more democratic? Are we as a church influenced by postmodernism on one hand and extreme conservative trends in society on the other hand? Why was early Adventism more outspoken regarding social evils and other issues in society, while today we typically are more accommodating? What about the use of Ellen White that we treasure as divine, a divine messenger? While some Adventist circles elevate her from the position of minor light to the position of the major light, others disregard that light at all. What about our approach to installing persons to church office? So why do we, for example, elect deacons to their office while oftentimes we do not elect teachers? Teachers have, may, may, may have much greater influence than deacons. And what about our personal life, our habits to work, how we spend leisure time, our approach to healthful living. Do we have to review our own traditions? I at least have to do that. Traditions and the will of God. Tradition and scripture. Jesus is not done yet. He has driven home his point on tradition but he has not answered the issue of uncleanness or defilement directly. And he now addresses this topic with the crowd. And so if you have your Bible still open, read with me verses 14 and 15. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. So in these verses, Jesus acknowledges that there is something like uncleanness or defilement in the human being. This is the first part of his answer, which he then will elaborate later with his disciples. As in verse two through six, we again find a movement. Remember, hands, lips, hearts, and now what you have, the movement from outer to inner. Jesus makes clear that what comes out of us defiles. The emphasis is not, is not on what is outside, but what is inside in us. And again, Jesus is not talking about hygiene. The issue at hand is still eating food with unwashed hands, yes. But such behavior does not defile. Washing hands as a cultic ritual 
is meaningless and does not help in any way. This is, however, what people are concerned with. And if this is only what people are concerned with, their religion is hypocrisy, as Jesus himself says. Now, this brings us to the last part of this long episode. Jesus dealt with the Pharisees and scribes first. He addressed the masses, and now he has time for the disciples. We read verses 17 through 23. Verses 17 through 23 in Mark 7. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled, cleansing all food? And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. So the disciples were not satisfied with the answer Jesus had given, so they need to understand better, and this is good so. Although Jesus chides them for still not being understanding, he is open for those who are willing to learn. So Jesus repeats and elaborates on what he just has taught the masses, namely that the issue is the inside more than the outside. And two more times he con contrasts the outer with the inner. Food eaten without having the hands washed does not defile. But humans are defiled by what comes out of their inner being. This is the real problem. And it goes much deeper than ritual and tradition. Had Jesus mentioned the heart when talking with the Pharisees and scribes, he now comes back to the heart and mentions that twice. The heart counts. Eternal religious observances are empty without moral behavior. And Jesus mentions 13 vices. Maybe the first one is a kind of heading for the rest of them. These are evil attitudes and evil acts. Basically, this is a violation of the Ten Commandments. Yet they also reflect what humanity is all about. And they put a mirror in front of our face. The problem with the false use of the gift of sexuality appears first and foremost. It is referred to three times in this list in different forms. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had defined what killing includes. The evil I mentioned in this passage seems to point to envy. Out of the heart comes also blasphemy, which is typically directed to God. And then we find, surprisingly, a reference to foolishness. Normally, we consider a fool a person that is a bit naive, not a person that has a moral problem. But this is not the biblical portrayal. In the Old Testament, the fool is linked to the wicked, and his foolishness in, consists in his wrong attitude to God, which prevents him from knowing how to behave properly. So Jesus' message to the disciples is, it is not necessary to wash 
ceremonially the hands. And it is not enough to speak the right things. The heart has to be completely with God. It must be committed to the Lord. At the same time, Jesus' message here goes beyond what he has just addressed. Because what he does here in the second part is talking to our sinful nature. It is the heart, the very innermost nature of one's being that is the problem. While worship must be done from the heart, this heart also needs to be controlled because of the evil thoughts and practices that spring up from within us. Someone writes here, surely our own ha recent history provides ample evidence of the extent and persistence of sin that is present in our hearts and in our social structures. People of power and influence still take advantage of those who respect and admire them as they have since the dawn of recorded history. It may be true that babies are not born hating other people, but we learn to hate with great facility. Hatred ripe, ripens every day into racism, discriminatory laws, vindictive tribalism, and secret organizations that seek to remake the world according to bygodded vision. None of us is free from the effects of sin. So when we read this passage, we have to ask Jesus, how can Jesus, how can you reprimand the Pharisees and scribes for being far away from God with your heart? Verse 6, if the heart is evil anyway, and out of the heart comes all these expressions of evil, how can our thinking processes, our will, the center of human existence be controlled? If formal worship cannot do that, and rituals and traditions are powerless to achieve this. So the Pharisees and scribes were wrong. The issue was not cultic defilement that needed to be avoided by following human traditions. The issue is personal sin. The deep human need cannot be fixed by creating rabbinic or other, any other legislation, and then follow this legislation. Uncleanness is moral rather than ritual. What is really needed is a renewal and a cleansing of the human heart. And this is where Jesus leads us with the end of this passage. First, follow God wholeheartedly. Second, this is not possible if your heart is not renewed. The passage that we have studied does not seem to address these questions about the change of the heart. It reminds us, however, of our desperate situation and the need of the Savior. Still, the rest of the chapter, the story about the women, woman and others, provide an answer, I think, to this crucial question how cleansing and renewal can happen. By following Jesus, uh, sorry, by allowing Jesus to heal us as he healed the child of the Syrophoenician woman and opened the ears of the deaf man. Allow Jesus to heal you. And second, by believing in him against all odds as this lady did. 
His grace covers our sins and takes care of our sinfulness so that as a response of tremendous gratefulness, we can devote ourselves to him in full commitment to live a holy life. Outer ceremonies and human traditions avail to nothing and do not provide healing, forgiveness, peace, and assurance. His grace, however, that was there even before we noticed our deepest need has made us whole again. So our passage, this difficult passage in Mark 7, is not a denial of food laws that God has given, but a denial that traditions can contribute to our salvation. Some of them even must be given up. The passage confronts us with the glorious message that although affected by sin, we are not unclean beyond redemption. There is no group of human beings that has an advantage over the rest of us when it comes to salvation, not even God's elect people of old. Our hearts can be renewed, and so we can be close to God, with God, and he with us. Praise be to the Lord. <laughs>